The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. The word of God speaks to us like this. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but, with, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now for this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life that many who, who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God to us. Have a seat, thanks Micah. Well, good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Bryce Johnson. Um, I am pastoral residence here at Frontline Church, and it is a joy and honor to be here with you guys to unpack what the text would have for us. If you're new or if it's been a little while since you've been here, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark and we're seeing the life of Jesus. And the drumbeat that we've been beating since day one is that we're seeing that Jesus brings this new kingdom, this upside down kingdom, if you will, and where he shows us what the kingdom of God actually is like. Um, it's unlike any other kingdom, unlike any other worldview or system. And Jesus is unlike any other figure in history. He's unlike anyone else that we met because he's able to hold seemingly contradictory things uh, at the same time in his person. So he is kind and he's compassionate and he's gentle. But he's not afraid to say difficult things in correct areas where we walk in rebellion. He's patient when we don't understand and he's tender-hearted and yet he also calls out hypocrisy and injustice. He humbles the proud and he lifts up the beaten and broken down. And, and what we've seen is that we can actually trust him because he's good. And what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark is we can trust him also because he is God. And today we land on a passage where Jesus lovingly 
graciously confronts us on how we view money and wealth and possessions. Now, some of you may be thinking, this is a terrible week to come, right? Uh, maybe you wish you would have stayed home or checked out another church. Um, maybe you feel like the church always talks about money or just wants your money. And if I can, if I can humbly uh, put before you that that is not our hope, that is not our goal. When we talk about money, we talk about money because the Bible talks about money, and it talks about money a lot, actually. It talks about money over 2,100 times, more than it talks about love, more than it mentions prayer. Jesus teaches on money more than he teaches on heaven or even marriage. And it's because Jesus knows the destructive effect money can have on our hearts and souls when we chase it and when we cling to it. So we talk about money because we want to be faithful to what God would have for us and because we firmly believe it's actually a discipleship issue. Money and wealth are the keys to our hearts. And friends, Jesus is actually after our hearts. And so listen, rest assured, we're, we're not going to be taking an offering after this sermon. Uh, Chad's not going to bring up like, like a thermometer to measure the faithfulness of your giving. Um, there's no number we're trying to reach. We're not going to lock the doors on you, rest assured. But we will examine this text and see where it challenges us. Because we love you, and we're after your heart and not your cash. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And often, to get to one, we have to teach on the other. So, when we talk about passages like this, I want to give a couple, a couple caveats before we move forward. When we talk about passages like the one in front of us this morning, the tendency is to assume that the Bible is talking about someone else. Someone wealthier than us. Because, because where do we draw the line on wealth? Well, wealthier than us, right? Um, J.J. Watt is a football player, and in 2014, he signed a massive contract for $100 million. It was, it was wild. A reporter came to him afterwards and said, man, what did you do? What are you going to do with this, with this $100 million? And this is what he said. He said, I pulled out my phone, and I Googled, what do rich people buy? Because I don't feel like a rich person, and I don't really try to act like a rich person. So I don't know what they buy. I didn't really want the stuff that I saw, so I'm going to stick with my humble lifestyle and just keep working out. Now, I think everyone in this room would agree $100 million is a lot of money. I think that makes you rich. But what I found fascinating was that he had actually signed uh, a deal as a rookie for $11.25 million. And so he didn't think he was rich when he had $11 million, but $100 million, okay, then I'm rich. But on top of that, he just didn't feel rich. And I think we often view wealth um, in the same way. Wealth is something more than the number that we make. Or wealth is sort of mindset. I, I don't feel wealthy, so I, I, don't, I don't know if that's me. And the temptation is to always assume that when the Bible talks about wealth, it's talking about someone wealthier than us. But I'd like to humbly invite you to consider that the Bible is actually talking about us. So rather than comparing yourself to the person richer than you, right, rather than thinking Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or Bill Gates or whoever comes into your mind when you think rich person, can I invite you to consider yourself relative to the rest of the world? This week I, I googled uh, the median household income in Yukon. And friends, we are economically in the top 2% of the world. 
I don't know if you knew that. Top 2% of the world. And even in the U.S., the average income in Yukon is higher than the average income in the rest of the U.S. So friends, can I invite you to consider your wealth relative to the larger context and not just relative to your neighbor? I also know that for some of us in this room, we're making ends meet, living paycheck to paycheck. Some of you in this room are in great financial pain and burden. Life has been hard and the COVID economy has not helped. And you're feeling the tightness of your wallet. So friends, if that's you, please hear me that I feel for you. My heart goes out to you. No judgment, no harshness. We're sensitive to where you are. And I'd like to invite you to actually press into the family of God to come find us. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But when it comes to sin and the love of money, the Bible reminds us that the love of money is actually an equal opportunity in idolatry. The Bible reminds us that idolatry of money does not discriminate whether you have a lot of money or don't have a lot of money because it's not only the rich who struggle with the love of money or have an over-reliance on money. And so friends, with that in mind, we're going to look at the text before us this morning and here's what I want us to see. I want us to see that Jesus lovingly exposes our idols. I want us to see why Jesus singles out wealth specifically. And I want us to see how Jesus invites us to change how we view our things. I want us to see how Jesus lovingly exposes our idols, why Jesus singles out wealth, and how Jesus invites us to change how we view our possessions. And in the previous passage, uh, parents were bringing their children to Jesus and his disciples were trying to shoo them away because after all, Jesus is the Messiah. He's got really important things to do. He's got more important things to do than play with your kids or hold your toddler. And Jesus lovingly rebukes them. He says, hey, unless you actually approach me, uh, unless, you don't, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you can't enter it. And what Jesus is saying is that unless our posture is like that of a child, weak, dependent, trusting, unassuming, then we can't receive the kingdom of God. If we can't come to the Father in our weakness, trusting His goodness, trusting His word, then we won't get it. And as he's leaving the scene, we see someone approach who's not a weak, unassuming, dependent child. We see this man run up, and that's where we find ourselves in the passage this morning. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. The man runs up to Jesus, and Mark tells us he has great possessions, which is um, a fancy way of saying he was rich. And Matthew and Luke's account of this story, they actually call it a little bit more. They say, hey, not only was he rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. So he's successful, and he's got it all. And look what he does. He, he falls before Jesus in a posture of humility. He, he addresses him respectfully. He's got good manners, he's respectful, and he's moral and religious. We see that he's devout, he keeps all the commandments. So he's young, rich, 
successful, moral, religious. It's the sort of person that most of us want to be, isn't it? If, if you're a parent in this room, it's the sort of person that we probably want our kids to marry. It's the sort of person that we would expect is leading in the church or serving in some unique ways. He seems to have it all. And yet, despite having this great pedigree, he's still unsure if he has eternal life. And so he comes to Jesus, which, by the way, is a great person to turn to if you're unsure if you have eternal life. And he asks Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me ask you a question. How would you expect Jesus to respond? Or, or put it a different way, how would you respond? If you're like me and you grew up in the church, then, then you learn some verses, you learn some formulas, on, and this feels like, like someone's teeing you up for a grand slam, right? Someone comes up to you and, how do I inherit eternal life? Here, here's what I would say. I would say, listen, dude, you can't do anything to inherit life. It's all grace. Or, hey, repent of your sins, pray this prayer, believe in this, and not that any of that is wrong, but what we see Jesus do instead, instead of propositions and formulas, Jesus draws this man in in order to draw him out. He says, hey man, you know what to do. Obey the Ten Commandments. And so he lists out the last six commandments. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, which fraud is the end goal of coveting. When you see something that you want, you defraud someone in order to gain it. Honor your father and mother. It's the sort of answer that the religious leaders would have given. Hey, obey the rules, do the right thing, and you'll get the right thing back. You'll get rewards back. And the man says, I've done all those things. Is, is there anything else? And again, how would you respond in that moment? I would have said, no, 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 you don't understand. You can't keep all laws. You surely you haven't kept all laws because you, you can't. Or I would have said, um, okay, maybe, maybe you haven't committed adultery, but have you looked at a woman lustfully? Jesus just taught, like, hey, if you do that, then you've broken the law. But watch how Jesus responds instead. In Mark chapter 10, verse 20, this is the man. He says, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. To this successful, rich, religious man who seems to have it all, Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. This man who is about to walk away from Jesus, who is about to walk away from eternal life, Jesus looks at him, and he sees the rich young ruler for all he is, all his successes and all his faults, his fears, his failures, the deep parts of his heart. And Jesus actually sees the area this man did not want to give up, and Jesus loved him. And he loved the man enough to gently draw out his idolatry. <clears throat> Friends, Jesus sees you today. He sees all of you. He sees all your good deeds, all your great quiet times, all your obedience. And he also sees your failures and your sin and the hidden, deep, secret places of your heart. And so let me ask you, how do you think Jesus looks at you? 
Does he look at you in exasperation and disgust? When you, when you come to Jesus, what do you think goes through his mind? If I'm honest, most, thing, most days, I don't think Jesus looks at me and loves me. I think most days he looks at me and he's a little frustrated at me. How could he love me? If Jesus can look into the depths and see all of me, how could he love me? And if you're in here and you feel far from God, maybe you've actively actually walked away from him and run away from him. What this text would remind us is that Jesus looks at you and he loves you too, even right now. See, this right here is a story of everyone who would come to Jesus. Jesus looks into our very heart and he loves us. And because he loves us, he wants what's best for us. And that means he's going to actually expose sin that we're clutching onto. That was my story. I grew up in the church. Uh, really moral, righteous kid. Did all the right things. I said I walked with Jesus. I even led in the church. I obeyed all the right things. And then in love, Jesus started unpacking and revealing like an onion just all these ugly things within me. Self-righteousness. Selfishness. An addiction to approval. And he does it because he loves you too much to leave you in your sin. Jesus looks at this man and loving him, he tells this man, hey, there's one thing you actually haven't done yet. Sell your things, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And he says this because Jesus knows that the love of money was actually keeping this man from going all in on Jesus. He's showing this man that as moral as he is, as righteous as he is, he hasn't fully even kept the first commandment to love God above all else. You shall have no other gods before me. See, far too often when we think of idols, we think of little golden Buddhas or, um, you know, Hindu deities or things in the other parts of the world or, or um, deities for other religions. And, and those are certainly idols. But Paul reminds us in Colossians 3, an idol is actually anything that we turn to and trust that isn't God. And what this text reminds us and shows us is that anything we're not willing to give up for Jesus is actually an idol. Because it sits on the throne of our heart. I was reflecting this week, Jesus offers this man eternal life. He says, hey, walk away from this thing that's got a hold of your heart and follow me. And instead, the man walks away from Jesus instead. Sorrowful. Why? Because he had a lot of things and the idea of giving that up to follow Jesus just did not feel worth it. Here's a question for us this morning, friends. What might the Lord lovingly be asking you to give up to faithfully follow him? What is it that, if Jesus asked you to give it up, might cause you to walk away sorrowful? Is it the career that you've worked so hard for? Or, or the dream job that you've had? What if Jesus lovingly said no to that? Is it the middle class American dream of comfort? Nice house, well manicured lawn, Instagram worthy family, good schools, desirable neighborhoods? Sweet vacations. What would Jesus were to call you to actually downsize, move into this less desired apartment complex, 
where you don't have a fence and get to know your neighbors. Friends, what, what would that do to your heart? For some of you, I really think that the Lord might be saying, you lack one thing, give up social media and follow me. Because you don't even know the ways in which it's become an idol, but you mindlessly scroll, coveting others' Instagram lives, demeaning and destroying people on Twitter with snarky comments, going down Reddit rabbit holes, shoring up political idolatry on Facebook. Friends, Jesus looks at you this morning and he loves you. And he might be asking you to give the thing that's the hardest to give up. And he might be saying, you lack one thing. Go and forgive that person. Forgive those people who have wronged you, who have done great harm to you, and come follow me. See, do, do you know what the, what the key is to uprooting idols? It's actually seeing the beauty of the true God. Seeing the beauty of Jesus on a cross, giving up all that he is for your sake and my sake, and realizing that the big G God is so much sweeter and better and kinder and more f fulfilling than our little G gods. Seeing the value of Jesus or the value of anything else. Jesus exposed this rich man's <laughs> idolatry. And this man looked at his possessions. He looked at Jesus. He looked at his possessions. They looked at Jesus. And he walked away from Jesus. Friends, my prayer this week has been that we would not do the same. That we, like the pearl of great price, would see Jesus as something that we're willing to give up anything in order to attain. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. Jesus presses on to teach his disciples what is specifically dangerous about the love of wealth. We all assume that life would be a little bit easier, probably better, if we had more wealth. Am I right? And money and wealth are not moral things. It's not like one is it, it's, it's good or it's evil. Money is not evil. Being rich is not evil. And neither is being poor. But for those who have wealth and those who would seek more of it, listen, the Bible doesn't speak consistently um, commending it or condemning it. But for those who are rich or want to be rich, the Bible always speaks with a consistent tone of warning. Warning. Listen to how Paul warns a young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. James 5 gives this blistering warning. He says, hey, rich people howl and weep because your rotting treasures on earth will be used against you on the day of judgment. See, love of money is so dangerous because it promises that the more of it that we have, the more comfort and security and approval and affection and love that we'll actually have. It promises that the more money we have, the easier life will actually be. And that's why it's an idol, because it's promising, it's promising to do the things that God promises that he's going to do and that he will do. So friends, are, are you chasing wealth? 
Do you daydream about having more of it? The Bible warns us, be careful. Be careful. Because what's the end goal of the wealth that you're chasing? Is it to end on yourself? Is it to end on more comfort? More pleasure? More joy? More security? More safety? Look at what Jesus says to his disciples. Verse 23, Mark 10. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, and who can be saved? Jesus warns us there's something about having wealth that makes it difficult to enter the kingdom of God and shocks his disciples because the prevailing cultural notion of the day was that if you had more, if you had these material blessings, then it meant that God was pleased with you. And it meant that you were probably closer to God. And if you had riches and you were moral and religious, it was a surefire sign. And so for Jesus to say that rich people would find it hard to enter the kingdom, it went against all their assumptions. He even uses this picture of a camel and the eye of a needle. And in case it's been a long time since you've seen a camel or a stone, here's the gist of it. A camel, really big. Eye of a needle, really tiny. How do you get a camel through the eye of a needle? You can't. It's impossible. And that's why the disciples are shocked. Because Jesus just needs to say it's really hard for a rich person but, but, but if, they, if they give up enough, if they, if they uh, give enough, if they do the right things they can get in, Jesus says it's actually impossible. And praise God, we know a God who does what's impossible. Mark chapter 10, verse 26. And they, being the disciples, were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them. He looked at them. And he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I love how we use that verse to describe how we can conquer hard things. We even use it to describe how we can gain more wealth, right? We say, I believe I can get this promotion. With God, all things are possible. I believe the scratch-off lottery ticket will strike it big. With God, all things are possible. What this verse is actually telling us is the opposite. With God's help, it's actually possible to live in such a way where wealth doesn't have control of your heart. The Bible warns against desiring to be rich, but do you know what it actually encourages? What it actually encourages is contentment. Contentment. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 4, he says that he's discovered how to be content when he has a lot and when he has little. But do you know what the secret is? The secret is that he can actually do all things through Christ who gives him strength. Another verse that, 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 we, that we use to, to try to achieve our wildest dreams, it's actually about how God can work in us to not have a love of money. Friends, would you ask God to free you from a love of wealth or a love of things? Wherever you are, whether you have a lot of it, or you wish you had a lot of it, would you heed the warning of the Bible and ask God to do the impossible in you? 
Friends, whatever you're carrying today, our God does the impossible, and he can do the impossible for you even today. So Jesus lovingly points out the idolatry in our hearts. He explicitly pinpoints the love of money. And the last thing we're going to see is that Jesus invites us to change how we view our possessions. Look with me at verse 28. And Peter began to say to him, Peter's always the first one to speak, isn't he? Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father, or children or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter says, hey Jesus, that rich guy, he couldn't do it, but you know who did? This guy. We did. And they did, right? They left their careers, they left their livelihoods, they left their families, and rather than commending them for their sacrifice, or rebuking them for their arrogance, you know what Jesus does? He promises, hey, you're going to receive back whatever you've given up, and you're going to receive so much more. I think so many times we hear this and we're like, yes, heaven is going to be great. Have mansions and great things, a new creation, it's going to be awesome. And that's part of it. But what Jesus said is, hey, in this life, you get some of that too. Now, is he offering us like a prosperity gospel? No. No. What Jesus is doing is he's inviting us into this new community that he creates. Where those who belong to him belong to a new family. And this family lives in such a way that they move towards one another in love. And it's sort of like we own each other's things. That's how much we love one another and move towards one another. What's mine is ours. And what's yours is ours. And maybe you're thinking, I knew it. This guy moved here from Austin, that liberal city, bringing in socialism, and listen, I'm flattered. I really am. But this is the very thing we see in Acts, isn't it? When the new church is formed, and we see this radical generosity among them. We see they share and distribute among themselves as they had need. Homes were opened up and meals were shared and land was sold and given to the church and given to those in need. And there wasn't a needy person among them. It was this radical generosity. And Jesus invites us into a new way of viewing our things. It's an invitation to live open-handed where we don't let our possessions possess us. But we mobilize our possessions to advance the gospel and proclaim where our treasure actually lies. Hey, my treasure's not in this house. My treasure's not on this plot of land. My treasure's not in this vehicle, but it actually exists in a place where moth and rust don't get to. And we view the things God has blessed us with as things to be stewarded, as things not ultimately just for us and our pleasure, but they're for the blessing of others and the flourishing of others. Here's what I was thinking about this week. Friends, what if we actually lived this out? What if, what if our homes were not just castles that we retreated back into at the end of the day, but were actually havens of hospitality? 
What if we actually lived out the call to be brothers and sisters and mothers and spiritual fathers and family to one another? Crossing lines of age and culture, moving towards one another in love towards people who are different from us. What if we actually use the ways God has uniquely gifted us to serve the various needs of the body? What if our primary mindset when it came to wealth was not, how much of it do I need to give away? But how much of it can I, do I get to give away? How much of my wealth do I dare keep? What if, what if we didn't just live above our means? What if we didn't even live at our means? We live below our means so that we can mobilize our wealth and our resources so that there actually wasn't a needy person among us in the family of God. If it sounds idealistic, if you're rolling your eyes at me, it might be because we've got too small of a view of what it means to be the family of God. We've got too small of a view of what Jesus actually did on the cross, creating a new community, what, what scholars call an eschatological community. What that means is it's a community that looks like what it's going to look like in the new creation in heaven. We are living in it right now. Friends, this is what we're striving for in our community groups. This is the reality that we're trying to live out. And I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen groups move towards individuals and families in need, meeting them relationally, giving sacrificially. Some of you have had people move into your homes, sometimes for extended seasons. Some of you have fostered or you've come alongside families who are fostering. What we're living out is, is not just some strange commune, right? And it's not just socialism. What it is is the people of God living in the reality of who God has created them to be. People who have joined a new community because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so listen, if, if you're here and you're in financial burden, and pain, can I invite you to press into the family of Christ to bring your needs before your brothers and sisters. If you're here and you're feeling the bitterness of loneliness, can I invite you to press into a community group and find relational life and healing there. And if you're in here and you're not part of the group, can I boldly invite you to let us help you find one. Come find one of the leaders. We would be happy to let you, help you find a group near where you are. And listen, these groups are not perfect. As anyone who's been part of a frontline community group will tell you, or any community group, they're not perfect. We're trying to live out this new reality in these groups. And just in case you think it's all just sunshine and flowers and, and, and great, Jesus reminds us that in in this new community where we also get to experience and walk through this persecution. It's, it's part of the kingdom. We share our lives together and we get to walk alongside one another when things get hard. Now, here's the thing. If you walk out these doors today and try to live this out in your own power, you're just going to burn yourself out. You'll actually be, be doing the opposite of what Christ has called you to. If you try to uproot the idols, in your life, yourself, if you try to give generously and live really frugally and try to share your things and, and try to meet everyone else's needs by yourself, what you'll end up doing is actually the exact same thing that the rich young woman was doing. 
coming before Jesus with a list of all the good things that he had done and hoping that that's enough for eternal life. Spoiler alert, it's not. The Apostle Paul wrote much of the New Testament, has a similar story or a similar pedigree to the rich young ruler. He was successful, respected, moral, religious. It's a sort of pedigree that would make you think this guy is actually crushing it. And then he met Jesus. Jesus looked at him and loved him and began exposing the areas of his life in which he had not yet given up to God. And watch how Paul reflects on this later in life. Philippians chapter 3. Paul gives his spiritual resume. Jew among Jews, circumcised among the third. He gives all these things that he's done. And then watch what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness or, or right standing before God, the righteousness that inherits eternal life, it doesn't come from good works of the law. You don't get it as an exchange for all the good things you do. It only comes through faith in Christ, faith in Jesus, faith in what he has done. And if you're here and you're wondering what that faith looks like, it means putting your hope and your trust and your confidence, your treasure in the cross of Jesus. It means believing in his resurrection, trusting that Jesus' life, death, and victorious resurrection actually accomplishes something. That's, that's the gospel of Jesus. And if we park our faith in Jesus, if we trust what Christ has accomplished, we can actually learn to say no to unrighteousness. We can actually learn to put to death the love of money, and we can live as a redeemed community of God. Faith looks like believing you already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies because of what Christ has done. So you can release your grip on material blessings because we already have everything. When you have Jesus, you have everything. That's good. Friends, would you bow your heads in prayer?